the most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Happy Bastille Day if you're French. Good luck on Sunday night, Monday morning. Well, I'd like to see Croatia win. Anyway, I hear tomorrow night, you and McCabe, more amazing stories from the World Cup tournament throughout history. Uh, he's a great raconteur and has got some uh, an encyclopedic knowledge of the World Cup. I don't think he's missed a match since no, 1980-something. Nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Keep your ears peeled. This hour, we'll be giving away a double pass to the New Zealand International Film Festival. It's kicking off in Auckland, July 19th. We will have tickets available throughout the country, though. Um, next up, James Crute will take you through, really, the guts of what the New Zealand International Film Festival is, and that is international dramas. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Hello, James Crute. G'day, Graham. How are you? Good. I can hear you tap, tap, tapping on your keyboard. I know. Bringing up what we're going to talk about with the New Zealand <laughs> International Film Festival this week. We had a look at documentaries last week, uh, but we're having a look at dramas uh, this week. We are indeed, and I guess we're probably looking at the more global kind of scale. This is this is the you know the reason why this film festival exists in a lot of ways. Certainly, yeah. traditionally, um, was to bring the best cinema from around the world. You know, wherever that may be, stuff um, we didn't get, stuff we yeah. didn't get to see otherwise. Yeah, big exactly. international dramas. Yep. Yep. Exactly. And the and the one I want to start with first is a film called The Guilty. Uh, I might have mentioned this in passing the other week, actually, but it's uh, it's one of those really compelling kind of things. You know, if, if you looked at it on a page, you might not get too excited about it. But it's a bit like a film a couple of years back with Tom Hardy called Locke. There's also been one with Ryan Reynolds called Buried. Um, it's essentially a drama set in one place. You know, it's it's virtually a single actor movie, course of 90 minutes, but it's, it's you know, wringing every last ounce of tension and drama out of such a premise. So this one is all about this Danish cop. He's been sort of busted down to um, desk duty, basically in the dispatch centre, because of, uh, you know, some kind of misdemeanour that gradually unfolds. And, uh, you know, what looks like it's it's supposed to be his final shift before he has a meeting the next day to try and get back, you know, on the proper beat. Um, and uh, it, it starts out as a typical shift, and then he gets this call from this woman who's seemingly been abducted in a car, and he he uses all his skills from his field work to try and uh, help her out. But, of course, things aren't exactly what they first seem from that call. Um, look, you know, it's just one of those things where it just goes off in different directions. And, you know, we have this one character who's the prism for, I guess, all of our kind of emotions that we're feeling as we watch it as well. Yeah, and we also get to see international actors that we don't usually get to see, and they can be magnificent, can't they? I mean, I'm sure he can speak English, but who's this Jakob Kurdigan? 
Yeah, exactly. Who is he? That's the thing. But, I mean, you know, he, he probably is destined for bigger things is because of it. You know, he's the thing in previous years, just started Danish and Swedish actors, the likes of Mads Mikkelsen and um, Stellan Skarsgård have all kind of come through, you know, making movies in their own country first before branching out into, to, well, not not necessarily better, but bigger movies, if you like. Yeah, yeah. You know? Max van Sydow. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I would definitely check that one out. Um, a, a, shall we say a world away, but equally interesting, thought-provoking, that kind of thing, is a Lebanese courtroom drama. No. Um, called The Insult, yes. <laughs> okay. This this is quite an it's quite a fascinating kind of a movie. I mean, it is very political. Let's be honest. I mean, basically, it's this escalating courtroom war between. Um, a Christian uh, uh, sort of uh, I'm trying to remember what his, what his actual vocation is. Basically, he's a homeowner and he comes up against this Palestinian um, road crew uh, boss who's busy doing things in the street below and objects uh, to uh, what's what's happening above him because uh, this apartment owner starts sort of watering his outdoor garden and uh, sprays water on this guy's head. And then he, uh, he basically throws an insult at him. Um, you know, the Palestinian gets so frustrated, he, he says a couple of words he shouldn't, and uh, the guy takes offence and takes him to court. Ah. And then things just get completely out of control. Initially, both of them decide they don't need lawyers and think that's going to be all right. It doesn't go well for one of them. It gets to the next court, and all sorts of people with political motives start getting involved. Oh, this is a lovely premise. This is exactly, I suppose, a microcosm of how the wider world in Lebanon has worked for a long time. Uh, people are kind of on edge there. I mean, so this is a Christian versus uh, a, a Muslim and, you know, plenty of Christians in Lebanon and, and there are plenty of Palestinian Christians as well. But this is like that, um, you know, there's just so many different allegiances in Lebanon, like a microcosm of that. Yeah, it is. And, and of course, you know, it, it starts... <laughs> It starts bringing in things that happened 30 years ago, you of know? Of course. You know, blaming Sharon for all sorts of things. Yep, and yep. You know, and, and I guess it also comes down to what's the worst insult you can come up with. Um, <laughs> it depends. Because things really, yeah, well, things really start to escalate out of control. And, and family members say, you know, you've got to back down on this. This is, this is madness. But, oh, you know, wow. it's all about hurt pride and you know, other people thinking that there's a bigger thing. It feels like a based on fact kind of thing. I mean, it's not, but it's clearly inspired by a kind of what if. Yeah, yeah, good one. How crazy could this get? Another one sort of in, well, it's not the same region, that's this, but another one that's kind of interesting from a political point of view, but also a human kind of story, is this Australian director, Benjamin Gilmore's tale about a, a soldier on a mission in Afghanistan. So he's He's come back from the war, but he's decided to go back to Afghanistan. And, and the thing is that we don't really know what his motives are. But but he we see him initially kind of trying to find out information and trying to get to a particular remote location. Um, and uh, things don't go well for him, and he ends up being sort of kidnapped. Who's, what's the name of this movie? It's called Jirga. Oh, okay. 
Um, and and one, I guess the most interesting thing about this film was he wanted to make it conventionally. He wanted to make it within the rules that the both the Pakistani and the Afghanistan governments were prepared to let him. They wouldn't let him do it at all. So he thought, bugger that, I'll just make it anyway. So it's essentially him and this one actor, a guy called Sam Smith, going around meeting what seemed to be locals, some of them are, who are clearly playing parts, but um, and, and just this this whole story of, I guess, atonement in some ways playing out. It, it is, it's a quiet little film. It's but it's not one that ridiculously outstays its welcome. It's not a four-hour dirge or anything mm-hmm. like yeah. that. But it's just, I don't know. It's just a beautifully told little tale, and it's cleverly done. And, it, and it, as I say, it was made completely under the radar. And that's, I suppose, quite a tricky thing to do. It's hard. Well, enough. you can imagine. Um, you know, if, if something had gone wrong or they'd run into the wrong people at the wrong moment, this uh, could have uh, this could have gone horribly pear-shaped. Now, um, it's hard enough to get a permit, let alone um, <coughs> add the cojones to film without one. Yeah, exactly. So I, I believe Benjamin Gilmore's coming out to at least Auckland, possibly Wellington as well, to discuss how he made the film. That okay. would definitely be worth a chat right. being in on. Okay. More? Uh, in terms of the American kind of things, there's a couple that uh, that uh, wouldn't normally get a cinematic release or have kind of been a bit under the radar. One's called A Kid Like Jake, mm-hmm. which teams, uh, going back to Afghanistan, uh, Homeland's Claire Danes uh, with The Big Bang Theory's Jim Parsons as this couple trying to work out what school to send their child to in New York. And it's, it's, so it's got that whole kind of dilemma about what's the best kind of education for their child. The uh, the trick with this one is that their five-year-old uh, indulges in what's described as gender-variant play. Uh, for lay people or people born before 2000, or no, before, <laughs> born before 2000, let's be honest, yeah. um, essentially likes dressing up in princess costumes. Right. And so there's this whole thing. Should they deny that that's happening? Or should they actually promote that in terms of their um, applications to various schools? You know, is that going to help them with this kind of desire for diversity? Oh, God, right. You can tick a box in the diversity you can tick thing. A box and get a scholarship. Yeah. So that's a really interesting conundrum. You oh, know, Jesus, it's come to this, James. It's, <laughs> it's come to this. Precisely. So. It's it's definitely one that's going to have people talking after they've seen it, you know, and that's what we love about the film festival that you yeah. get those kind of films. Right, great. great. Uh, but the, the thing with this is that I just wish people were more indifferent about it rather yeah. than, um, you know, just love the kid. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. I'm talking about a made up story. So what the hell? See, we're talking about it already. Yeah, exactly. Um, another one which is uh, less. Uh, less kind of after dinner discussion sort of thing but but really is a very kind of heart-wrenching and warming story at the same time. One I actually saw last year called Lean on Pete. Mm-hmm. Um, it's based on a book from a few years ago. It's very much like Into the Wild or Wild. It's, it's a coming-of-age road movie. It's all about this young boy who's sort of had a, a rough kind of upbringing and he um, falls in with a sort of horse owner and trainer played by Steve Buscemi um, 
and he has this horse called Lean On Pete, who's a bit of an underdog horse. Uh, and the two boy and horse kind of bond. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's one of those kind of... Um, a young man's life is kind of influenced by the number of people that he meets along the way. It's got a really good cast. It's got Chloe Savini in it as well, Australian actor Travis Fimmel. But, you know, it's another another film where a young actor here, Charlie Plummer, kind of gets a really meaty role to sort of, you know, showcase that there's definitely another wave of talent coming through. And you don't have to tell stories about reverse vampires to, mm. um, you know, have something that resonates with people. It's it's a very cool little American sort of indie movie, if you like. Okay, nice. Um, uh, now European? Now. Yep. Uh, they have one very... There's a guy called Christian Petzold who's made a couple of really interesting films that have uh, struck a chord with Kiwi audiences, Barbara and Phoenix, which were both kind of German period dramas which looked at A, kind of the Cold War in East Germany, and B, sort of the end of World War II. Mm. His latest one is, is... It feels like a World War II movie, but it's actually set in modern-day Marseille. But it's kind of an alternative thing, and it suggests that the French government are cracking down on all sorts of things, and it's all about this courier who who assumes the identity of a recently deceased author and heads to Marseille from Paris looking to get important papers to the Mexican consulate. But they think he's the he's the one. And so he's trying to get these papers so that this author, aka him now, can uh, find a way out of this seemingly martial law controlled France and get to Mexico and then ultimately uh, America. Um, but what what's going on in the background is the uh, author's estranged wife also needs these papers and she thinks he's still alive because of this person pretending to be him going to the consulate. Oh, nice. Yeah. The wacky thing is you watch this movie and you think, this is this, this seems very familiar. What? It's playing out in a familiar way. Sure, it doesn't have somebody playing as time goes by or a man in a trench coat uh saying he's looking at you, kid. Mm. But it is very like a modern-day Casablanca. Oh, heavens. And it's just, it's kind of uncanny. Like it, That will either attract people or turn people off. That kind of thing where it's almost, you know, a little too homage if you like. Okay, an in-joke for the director that's spilt over I into the, something that everyone can so, see. But it's also, it's also not necessarily an in-joke. I mean, it's also played kind of seriously. Okay. What would, what would Casablanca be like in, in a modern world, if you like? Mm, yeah. Even though it's not quite our modern world. Okay, and that's transit. And you have to read that one or are the Germans doing us a favour? You do have to read that. Yeah, you have to read a lot of these. Yeah, who cares? All right. <laughs> hey, it's German the International Film Festival. und Lollipops. Yeah, okay, it's the International <laughs> Film Festival. That's what it's for. Um, I've got coming up uh, later on tonight, um, having a chat with, uh, what's his name, the director of Stray, the New Zealand art house movie, uh, Dustin yes. Feenley. Oh, man. It, it's slow, but it's beautiful. I haven't seen something like that made in New Zealand in a long time. No, that's true. And um, also, have you seen Bisbee 17? 
No, I haven't yet. Right, that's up, uh, coming up the... That's on the International Film Festival. We've got a direct link on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, but um, it's uh, it's an amazing story about some, uh, this awful thing that happened in a small mining town many years ago, and uh, the director goes in and, and um, quite clearly pulls the scab off the uh, the affair and uh, everyone's hurt again. Uh, it happened in 1917, but anyway, there's a big story behind it. That's tomorrow night. Uh, it's an amazing piece of American history. So we'll do that after we've had a chat with John Dibvig. But the point I'm just wanting to ask you: it's the widest movie I've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's re- really, really long and thin and wide. What do you call that, James? <laughs> Widescreen? I don't know. It's bigger than widescreen. Oh, it's wider than widescreen. Wow. I don't know. I think that probably defies. I mean, I guess 70 mil might have been. I don't know. Was that the other way? I can't remember. No, it's a panorama or something. Yes. That's, yeah, or Cinerama or all those other things they came up with, which were even where you had to have multiple screens in order uh, to play them. Yeah, yeah, well, it looked, well, in the digital age, you can't see the join. But anyway, I just wanted to ask you that. Yes. Um, okay, so something-a-rama, that'll do. Yes. <laughs> okay, James, hey, thanks very much. New Zealand International Film Festival, uh, July the 19th, it's kicking off. Get yourself uh, a physical program. We'll send you a physical program if you win a double pass. Nice. Give us a call now. 0800 844 747. 0800 844 747. Double pass to go see pretty much anything you like. Be reasonable because it might be sold out. Uh, okay. So do that. We'll just take no, no hoops or questions or anything to hoops to jump through. 0800 844 747. Double pass and a program coming your way. Next up, Max Cryer. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace. Words Here he is on board, Max Cryer, for another Saturday evening. And if you want to ask Max anything to do with words uh, pertaining in the English language, I think, primarily, uh, although English borrows from everywhere and steals. Uh, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's an email form there. I pass them on to Max, or you can ask on the Facebook page as well. Feel free. And if you want to mail, P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. Did, okay. you, did you say that I was on board? Mm, I did. Oh, that's an interesting one because it could mean those managing a company. It could. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> or maybe it could mean um, Jack Tars on the deck of a ship. Yes. Or walking out like a pirate pushing you to jump off the end. Oh, walking the, the plank. plank. Yeah. Was that a myth, I wonder? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, it would be high theatre in any case. Uh, today is July the 14th, rather a special day for the French. We'll address something along those lines a little bit later on, but our word of the week, oh my goodness, how this captivated people and unsurprisingly, the kiddies in the cave. C-A-V-E, cave. Cave. Well, that word cave has been in use in English for 500 years. It is defined as a hollow place in the earth, a natural cavity of considerable size and extending more or less horizontally. Uh, Now, English appears to have borrowed the word from an old French word for a vault or cellar, and the French had borrowed it from the Latin cavier, an adjective meaning hollow. 
which became the noun cavus, a hollow space, and eventually in English, cave. But because of the circumstances, I thought I'd find out what it was in the Thai language, because it would have been used a great deal over the last couple of weeks there. Oh, right, yeah. And the, in Thai, the word for cave is tum. Tum? Tum. Now that rings a bell. Well, it shouldn't because the boys have been rescued. But when I first heard, when my Thai instructor told me "tum," I thought it sounded very unfortunately rather like, foreboding, like "tome" or "tomb." Tomb. Yeah. Yes, but none, none of that has happened, thank goodness. No. But now we know if ever you need. Well, it has actually. One of the rescuers died. Ah, oh, yes. Sh we shan't forget that. Yes. Yeah. But if you should in the future, Graham, ever need to know the Thai word for cave, I can assure you that it is tum. Oh, right. Um, was it, I think, was it Thai? Yeah, I think it was the Thai. The Minister for Energy was um, Megawati. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Great, eh? That is good. Yeah. yeah, and the weatherman's called It's Gonna Rain Gitaranarak. Yes, I'm sure I believe you. Yeah. Thai names, gosh, they're wonderful things, aren't they? All right, uh, letters on a keyboard. Uh, why are they called uppercase and lowercase? It's actually because they could be big letters, small letters, couldn't they? Uh, yes, but the the question the listener said, why are they called uppercase and lowercase? And the answer is pretty straightforward, actually. In the 1400s there was a development towards printing documentation mechanically rather than writing everything by hand. And that had been the only way for several centuries. But the early forms of printing presses began to emerge where bins of metal cast letters of the alphabet were stored and the printer took out the letters he needed and placed them into a frame. And here's the good bit. Because capital letters were not needed as frequently as ordinary letters, the metal fonts of single capital letters were kept in an open case which was higher up to reach to oh. than the lower, bigger cases where the ordinary alphabet letters which were used all the time. It was um, an uppercase situation. The printer reached up and picked out the, the capital letter he needed to put into the frame, and then he reached forward into the, the, the lower case to get the letters he needed. Now, this lasted for several centuries. Around about the mid-1800s, experiments started about small desktop machines, later known as a typewriter, which itself was eventually replaced by computers. But although the reaching up to a higher shelf to get the capital letters out of the upper case is no longer necessary, the terminology remained. They're still called uppercase, and uh, the listener also wondered why the letter at the beginning of a sentence or a person's title or the name of a book is called a capital letter. Uh, well, that word comes from Latin capitalis, pertaining to the head, and rather than the actual human head, but the figurative head, such as the, the queen, describing the queen, or a place name like Rotorua, the word at the beginning of the sentence. The word can also occasionally move a bit sideways and describe something which is not necessarily the head of a sentence or a high rank, but simply exciting and enjoyable. Your friend went to a big outdoor concert in Christchurch and described the occasion as absolutely capital. Well, well old boy. Yes, well, meaning that it was, you know, at the top level of enjoyment. Again, the implication is that of the many concerts in the summer season, this one was the head of the list. Ah, it was capital. Capital, dear old boy. What a rum thing. What? What? Ah. Touch of P.G. Woodhouse, isn't it?
I can see that you've been to many concerts. <laughs> <laughs> the Germans capitalise so much. They like to capitalise yes. in nouns. Yes. Like a yes. pen and paper would be capital P, but if you were speaking <laughs> yes, German. Yeah, Strasse Street, capital S. Or the funny thing that they use for an S. Good heavens, who won the war? Okay. Uh, let's move on to this question from a listener or a Facebooker. I forget which. Doesn't matter. Best Bib and Tucker. This is new to me. Never heard of it. Yes, the listener asks if dressing carefully in your best clothes is sometimes described as wearing your best bib and tucker. Why? The listener says. Well, it's a very old saying, but it comes from an actually true situation. Um, the saying originated quite literally when both bibs and tuckers were items of women's clothing for about 200 years. We're speaking here in the 1600s. Early bibs were somewhat like modern-day bibs, but a wee bit larger. A description I found was written in 1688, and it describes the bid as a narrow piece of cloth which compasseth the top of a woman's gown about the neck part, mostly decorative. Now, a bib could be of fine lace or something as attractive, and although it might have been quite long, it was pinned to the dress underneath rather than being tucked into the waistband. These early bibs were known as bibs or pinners. And the pinner description became the origin of the word pinafore, known as pinafore. Pin, oh, good heavens. Pinned in really? front, you see. Pinned in front, covered only the front. Ah. Now, rather like bibs and pinners, decorative panels were, pilled on, or were pinned onto the front of women's dresses. Uh, there were also tuckers. Now, these were basically the same thing as bibs. But they were worn on the front of a dress, but the tuckers went lower and were tucked in at the waistline. Huh. So you could sort of dress up an old dress by having a front piece which started up at the collar and finished down at the waist, you tucked it in, okay. and that was the bit that people saw and they thought, oh, what a wonderful new dress. Um, they were tucked into the waistline and the best, the expression that the listener asked about, best bib and tucker, that's been in use since 1700. One quote from that time says, the country woman minds nothing on Sundays so much as her best bib and tucker. Well, tuckers were still being worn until at least the mid-1800s. Charlotte Bronte wrote in Jane Eyre, Some of the girls have two clean tuckers in the week, but the rules limit them to one. And later, tuck became a slang word for food, and then tucker, although both words are connected with the waistline, there's really no link between them. Uh, tucker okay. is a garment, right. and tuck is in a tuck shop. Uh, has a different history altogether. How fabulous, that pinafore thing. Yes. I never <laughs> even thought of that, and it's staring you in the face, yes, isn't it? Yes, It's It's a version of the tucker, but it's bigger, yeah. and it, it, it hangs down the front, and it's so big it's tied at the back with strings. HMS Pinafore, that rings a bell. Do you know what that is? It's a, it's a it's musical a or something, opera. isn't it? Yes, it's, it's a, a musical. Mm. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh. It's by two people. You've probably never heard of them, Graham. They're called Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, right. Yeah, he had a hit with Alone Again Naturally in yeah. 1971, <laughs> yes, didn't he? Gilbert he and did. Sullivan. Although he was dead at the time. Oh. <laughs> God, that's one of the saddest songs ever. HMS Pinafore, Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, okay. I think that person you mentioned was called Gilbert O'Sullivan. Oh, right. Mr. Sir William Gilbert and Sir Arthur Sullivan were two separate people, but I think Gilbert O'Sullivan was a one-man band. Right, it's like Simon O'Garfunkel. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, Max, uh, we'll stop having so much fun. We'll play some commercials. We'll, we'll be back very shortly. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Up front, set of forward scoring goals at this World Cup uh, this weekend, Max Cryer. Say that again. Up front, scoring goals for the World Cup this week, Max Cryer. Hi, how are you? Do you know, listeners, I have to tell you that at the end of the commercial break, what he said to me was, he usually says, are you ready to go? But he said, are you ready to run onto the field? (laughs) Okay, here I am on the field. That's my image. Yes. Very much so, yes. Good luck, son. Next question, please. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> Why are cigarettes called durries? Well, I think it sh- we should say that they're sometimes called durries because mm. um, it's really a mystery. The term arose in Australia early last century, but unfortunately the origin has never been 100% clear. The Australian Journal of Linguistics looked into the matter with some detail and they suggested in 1989 a, a, a good answer, which is widely accepted, that it may be derived from a very old brand of rolling tobacco, Bull Durham. This was a widely used brand of loose tobacco used for roll-your-owns, probably in the days before um, cigarettes were manufactured by mm. machines. But uh, Bull Durham tobacco you used in roll-your-owns, and that was available since 1850. Although the... How are you spelling Durham? D-U-R-H-A-M. Like the place. Like the person and the place. Now, the original use of the word was associated with roll-your-own cigarettes, and in modern years, when neatly manufactured, already rolled cigarettes became freely available in packs... The slang term durries now can mean any cigarette at all. But the only known explanation is that it arose during the era of hand-rolled cigarettes with tobacco from a firm called Durham. Ah, so this is like nugget, meaning nugget. Yeah. Boot polish, isn't it? It's <laughs> yes. the brand name which has given its name yes. and Xerox to yes. coffee things. And only one brand of shoe cleaner had that nugget on the yeah. cover. and Hoover to vacuum, all yes. those sort of things. Yes, the brand takes over. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, fabulous story, actually. Actually, um, now, I don't know how long this is going to take when I saw this question, but maybe there's an intriguing story as often is behind it. Not enough room to swing a cat. Well, it's a mystery. Somebody's asking, well, did, yes, where well, did this come it, from? It arose, the listener read something about an apartment which was for sale, and there was a comment about it that it didn't have enough room to swing a cat. Um... And he wondered if it was connected with the cat and nine tails punishment. Well, it is a bit of a mystery. A writer once said that, like strangers claiming relationships to a celebrity, there are various explanations of the saying and no 100% certainty which is the right one. But here we go, number one. The most usually accepted is that cat referred to isn't a cat at all, but is the whip used for punishment in the sailing ship days, the dreaded cat and nine tails. When it is wielded into a misbehaved sailor's back... The whip's thongs proved a very painful experience, but to effect this, the whip's swinger needed room, more than the average ship cabin provided, so whippings were customarily carried out on the deck, not only to demonstrate to the rest of the crew the consequence of evil ways, but also the space on the deck allowed a room to swing a cat. 
Now, there's doubt about that explanation because of the belief that no room to swing a cat existed as an expression a hundred years before the cat of nine tails came into use at sea. So we have to move to number two, equally unpleasant. Cats had mysterious and evil powers associated with witchcraft for many years and they should be tortured and killed. That was a rampant belief at roughly the same time as the battles within Europe required archers. As practice for archers, people actually did swing a cat and the archer tried to hit it with an arrow. No, they didn't. An activity which obviously needs a lot of space. If the cat wasn't literally swung by its tail... <laughs> A little dangerous for the swinger when facing a less than our... Bloody <laughs> dangerous for the cat. It could be put into a sack or a leather wine container and hung from a branch and then set swinging. It's actually referred to in Shakespeare, which does tend to sort of verify that it existed. Is this cat alive? Yes. Oh. Oh, the world is full of more cruel, uh, cruel stories, more cruel than that. Shakespeare, much ado without nothing, 1598. Benedict says, hang me in a bottle like a cat and shoot at me. So clearly it, it was happening in the 1590s. Now, Charles Dickens also seemed to favour a similar concept. David Copperfield. Mr Dick uses the term. He appears to mean quite literally a cat being swung when he says, you know, Trotwood, I don't want to swing a cat. Well, we go back to C for explanation number three, claiming that the cat is a corruption of cot, which is a shipboard term describing a hammock, and the hammock needs space to hang it properly. So if the mooring did not have enough space for such a vessel, uh, then you didn't have room in the, in the cabin to hang, hang the... Um, uh, the thing. The, th the hammock, I'm sorry, the, to hang your hammock. Here's number four, and we're still at sea this time when the cat described a compact merchant vessel, and this is true, it was used to describe a small merchant vessel, and if a mooring did not have enough space for such a vessel to manoeuvre, then there was not enough room to swing the cat. Oh. Finally, here's the explanation number five. In certain Scottish dialects, cat means rogue, who, when he runs out of luck, will come to his end with a noose, the hanging of which needs a certain amount of room. At least amid all those tangles of ancestry, it has to be admitted that nobody actually knows which of those five explanations is 100% true. The meaning of the expression has remained clear, even now being referred to in apartments in Auckland, but no room to swing a cat is undoubtedly referring to a small area, but we have five explanations and there's no way out. Although some of those explanations may help the... They help each other, I suppose, in solidifying it in the lexicon. I'm surprised. But Graham, I'm surprised. You know, whenever there's doubt about an explanation, you usually put on the judge's cap and announce your decision about which one must be true and the others are all rubbish. I'm just <laughs> too shocked about hearing that people without any qualms um, would swing a cat about a live one as archery practice. Yes, well, they did. And you can probably search the world today and find equally cruel things happening. Suppose so. Oh, man. Isn't it amazing the amount of effort and enterprise and industry and, and innovation that's gone into uh, designing things to inflict special pain? Well, in that case, though, it's, it's depicting special aim 
and that means war, and there is still war, and mm. always has been. No, I'm thinking of torture racks and things like that, the Iron Maidens and, and thumb screws and... Oh. Well, cheer yourself up, Graham, by asking me the last question. OK. Which is... All right, we'll forget the Inquisition at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did we get the word candidate? I love this one. I really love it. Does it have any connection with candy, the listener asked. No, there is no... What? What do you mean, what? Did they really ask? Has it got something to do with candy date? Oh, yes, but why? Perfectly logical question. Where's the problem? Candy okay. date? I mean, a date of candy? There's not no why in there. Well, no, okay, move on. That's okay, what, I don't want to put people off asking questions because right, they no, often no, I, have I, more questions the better. But uh, intriguing history. I'm simply saying, introductory message: there is no connection with candy. That word, candy, came into English through Persian, Sanskrit, and Arabic, where kanda meant a piece of fragment, and Arabic as sukar kwandi meant a sugary piece of something. So it has nothing to do with the word candidate. On the other hand, a candidate, a person who seeks or is put forward for public office by election or appointment, that word has been known in English since 1600, as it comes from the Latin candidatus. Now, here's the good bit. In ancient Rome, all seekers of votes for office wore togas specially treated to be pure white, which wasn't in the least bit easy in ancient Rome, no bleaching elements. The custom somehow indicated that the men inside these togas were straightforward and honest. So the Latin word dressed in white, candidatus, in time came to be used for the person himself, the candidate. The men standing for office became candidati, otherwise known as whitened men. So now in modern times, anyone standing for office of any kind where the word candidate is used is being presented as a person of honour, truthfulness and pure white unblemished character. Right. And so that's how and why people say I would, I'd, he was very candid. And his criticism yes. of the... Yes, same word, yes, yeah. quite right. okay. Now, July the 14th, New Zealand... Candid camera. Candid camera? You remember Candid camera, don't you? Yeah. It was one of the first reality shows, really. Are you old enough to remember Candid camera? <laughs> it's on YouTube, but yes, I am. Let's move to today's date in which New Zealand began what is known as a general election 165 years ago today. July the 14th in 1853. The New Zealand Constitution Act had been passed in Britain the year before and this provided New Zealand with a projected structure of a General Assembly, including a Legislative Council and House of Representatives, first time. Entitlement to vote required being male, 21 years or older, British citizenship, owning freehold property valued up to £50 or more, and to live in a house with an annual rental value of at least £10 or £5 if it were out of town. So, uh, in 1853, if you were one of those people, this was the first time you were allowed to vote. Ah, if you're a man. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I said that. That was being male. Yep. That was the first thing. The first thing. Yeah. Well, actually, ordinary men, they got the vote first, but it wasn't that long after that, that women got it too. After Pitcairn, of course, which was in fact the first. Oh, right. But New Zealanders intend to say, oh, but 
Pitcairn's not a country, but neither was New Zealand. It was a colony. Right. It's it's a widely uh, it's a widely sort of supported statement that New Zealand was the first country in the world. But makes us feel good, so we it, say yes, it all it the does. time. Yes, we say it all the time. It's not open <laughs> to close examination because the Isle of Man allowed certain women to vote, yeah. and Pitcairn allowed women to vote long before New Zealand. Okay, uh, July the fourteenth today. What, um, I suppose, a very happy happenstance for the French who've made it into the World Cup final that's being played on Sunday night where billions, actually billions of people will hear one of the most famous national anthems of all time, the Marseillaise. Now, today, July 14th, of course, is um, their Independence Day or, or what do they call it? Uh, well, I was curious about why it's called the Marseillaise. Oh, okay. Because that was sort of Bastille Day. Day. Pardon me, French. It's called Pardonnez-moi. It's called Bastille Day. Remember uh, although although even that's a bit dodgy. Oh, is that? Uh, but it was composed... The, you see, uh, Austria invaded France in 1792, oh. and the mayor of Strasbourg asked Roger de Lille to create a song which would rally the population, a war song. It was hugely successful, and when it grew in, in, in knowledge around the area, around France, volunteer army so soldiers from Marseille sang it as they marched through the streets of Paris, and that's where it gained the name. Oh, okay. It was never named after Strasbourg, where it was actually sort of the idea grew, and it wasn't named after Paris, but it's called, and it's still called the Marseille, and that's what everyone's quite happy with calling it that. Mm. But the big celebration um, is officially called La Fête Nationale, the national festival, but I think I'm right in saying that typically obtuse English-speaking people call it Bastille Day oh. because it does, in fact, celebrate the storming of the Bastille where the, uh, it was attacked by a mob, and that was on the 14th of July in 1789, and that was, that's considered to be the start of the French Revolution. Oh. So the governor of the Bastille eventually surrendered to the mob, and it was the most notorious, that prison, because the king could imprison anybody for doing anything that just opposed him. So the celebration of the fall of Bastille began, and the date, July the 14th, came to symbolise unity of French people. Napoleon wasn't keen on it. Oh, really? No, he wasn't. He sort of downplayed it, but his time came... Because it wasn't he... his. Gosh, he was. <laughs> yes, it was like... An infuriating but... individual, that Napoleon... But his time came to an end and the National Assembly and the Senate revived it in 1880. There was one thing about it that I found rather amusing. A particular feature of this big celebration day in, in, in France, in Paris and France, dancing and wild parties. And the wild parties are particularly focused on Parisian firemen. You look, what? You look surprised. Well, I was surprised when I found this out. In France, there's a hugely popular belief that firemen are particularly attractive and virile. Oh, really? So on Bastille Day, people gather in crowds to see them dance. Really? And put on their firemen's hats with a little axe and... It's going to... Bonjour. And sing and dance. Mademoiselle. <laughs> it could be said that the firemen represent sort of rugby players. Oh, I suppose so. Well, uh, yep, the World Cup final Sunday night or Monday morning, however you want to slice it, uh, and France versus Kravatska, uh, Croatia. Um, now, the lyrics, I always found out that the, I, the, I had an idea that the lyrics to the Marseille are pretty gory. I can um, tell them to you. Oh, okay. 
Arise, children of the fatherland, the day of glory has arrived. Against us, tyranny's bloody standard is raised. Listen to the sound in the fields, the howling of these fearsome soldiers. They are coming into our midst to cut the throats of sons and consorts. Oh, that's nice. To arms, citizens, form your battalions. March, march. Let impure blood water our furrows. Good heavens, it's all butchery again, isn't that's it? That's what war is. I suppose, but you have to have it in your... It's None of that in the Australian National Anthem. Australians all let us rejoice, for we are God of nations. We don't have cutting people up and I had blood answer, in the streets. I had to answer a thing during the week when a radio station wanted to know, why do we say, in the second verse, guide her in the nation's van? Oh, God, and yeah. the radio station rang me and said, it sounds like a pizza delivery. And I said, no, 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 van is short for vanguard, oh, which, means, the front. which means leaders, yes, leaders in battle, leaders in development. Mm. Yeah, guide us in the nation's van. Make New Zealand up ahead of everybody else. They're coming right into your arms to cut the throats of your sons, your women. Good heavens. But that's France, not New Zealand. Yeah, it is. And just in case you get any ideas, Johnny Frog, remember Argencourt? Okay. If it was going to be England versus France, I was going to wheel out Henry V, Act 3, Scene 1, the yes, best haka ever written. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. Once more into the breach. Once more into the breach, Or fill this gap up with our English dead. But they lost to Croatia. Never mind. Okay. The most famous version, I think, is indisputable uh, that it's the most famous version of the Marseillaise. is just the beginning of a song. The beginning of a song? Yeah. All You Need Is Love by The Beatles. All you need nice to... idea to have it at the beginning, because it was this worldwide broadcast, uh, rather internationalist of them. I, I know the song, All You Need Is Love, but I can't see the muscle in it. Oh, yes, yes, I know that. Love, love, Oh, yes, I see, yes, you're quite right, yes, quite right. Max, fabulous stuff, thank you very much. Here's a little of Las Bitel. Lots of people in French. I can't be bothered finding out. finding an animal that was thought extinct for a long, long time. It's happened. The coelacanth, of course, most famous case, probably. Uh, and the New Zealand takahe was thought extinct for decades and decades and decades. And was found again by, what was his name? Orbel. There's a coot who's got a TV show. He goes around the world trying to find extinct species. And I thought, oh, God, he's not going to be a Bigfooter, is he? Um, no, apparently not. And the awesome thing about this is he can already say, yes, they've had success. It's a TV show called Extinct or Alive. Uh, find out about it in the next hour. Also, um, New Zealand's extinct animals, what this country used to be like, a new technique is opening a very interesting window into the species that were around uh, pre-human and uh, early human colonisation after about 750 years ago. New sport and weather next.